Diana Penunchal, Associate Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and you're listening to Call Number with American Libraries. Love is at the library. Whether helping readers find their next fictional crush or offering couples space on their wedding day, the library is the perfect place to pair up. This episode, we're head over heels. First, American Library's Managing Editor Tara Dankowski speaks with Jill Manakis, Deputy Director of Special Events at Boston Public Library, where more than 100 couples have rented the library's new $200 one-hour wedding venue. Next, I talk with Robin Bradford, author of the upcoming Reader's Advisory Guide to Romance, and Jessica Pride, author of Black Love Matters and co-host of Book Riot's When in Romance podcast. We discuss how the genre has diversified and how libraries can tailor their collections for different kinds of readers. And finally, we chat with attendees at ALA's recent Love Learn X, um, that is, Lib Learn X conference, where they share who their favorite literary couples are. But first, here's a word from our sponsor. Have you heard? Booklistrator, Booklist's new book browsing guide offering reading recommendations to patrons of all ages, is now available in print. Go to booklistonline.com to find out how you can order print copies for distribution at your library. Already subscribed? Booklist subscribers can share issues digitally for free. Visit Booklist's website for more details and to see examples of how libraries are already sharing Booklistrator with their patrons. For literary lovers, the library can be the perfect place for a wedding. Managing editor Tara Dankowski speaks with Jill Manakis, Deputy Director of Special Events at Boston Public Library, about the library's $200 Monday wedding option, where couples can book an affordable and inclusive space to celebrate their big day. Jill, I know Boston Public Library offers private event rental for many of its spaces. But how did the library decide to offer one-hour wedding ceremonies on select Mondays? Sure. So we've hosted larger weddings at the library for over a decade, um, and it's been really great for the building. But we're always looking for a way to create an offering that is for more members of our community, for our patrons that actually use our library and services every day, and that was going to be at a more accessible price point for people. Yeah, and so it is $200 um, for this venue rental. Um, can you explain what that includes and can you describe the uh, Guastavino room where these ceremonies are held? Yes, so the Guastavino room is located within the McKim building. So the McKim building opened in 1895. Charles Follett McKim um, was the architect and created this palace for the people um, for the library here. Um, and the room itself features ceramic tile vaulted ceilings by a renowned designer, Rafael Guastavino, which is where the Guastavino name comes from. But this space also has really large windows that look out onto Copley Square, so it has a lot of nice natural light in it, which is really great. Included in that $200 venue fee, um, you have access to the space for one hour, so couples can come in. They can take photos within the space. The space is lined with a really nice balcony um, and bookcases, so you still get that library feel in the space. And we also offer chairs for your guests to sit in, of course, and a ceremony backdrop, um, which we typically dress up with some floral and some LED votives to really make it special and intimate. You know, initially when I heard that BPL was acting as a one-hour wedding venue, it 
kind of evokes that, you know, clicky Vegas wedding chapel because you kind of reserve <laughs> your, yeah, you reserve your yeah. spot on it one day. Um, but, you know, you, you do mention the affordability and, and weekday weddings are gaining in popularity because they are so affordable. Um, and I'm also thinking in terms of, you know, the library is all about access. Um, so do you think offering this service fits with the mission of the library? Absolutely. And we, coming out of COVID, saw that trend grow as well with these smaller, more intimate weddings and kind of found a lack in the city for options. But it does um, fit with the mission of the library. We're able to provide a beautiful, intimate, affordable option for couples in Boston. And as I mentioned before, it's always been a palace for the people here in the McKim building. So we are excited to make it available to couples that might not otherwise have access to the space. So how many couples have used this service, and do you have any sense or breakdown of whether these couples are booking the venue because they love books, because they love the library, they love the space? You know, what kind of feedback have you gotten in that regard? Yeah, so we started offering this option in May of 2022, so it hasn't been a year yet, but we've hosted over 100 ceremonies so far, which is really exciting for us. And as far as couples booking the venue, um, we, it really has been both. They love books. They love the library. We have an online application process, and couples can include a note if they wanted to to us, and a lot have shared their stories about personal ties to the library. Some couples came here on a first date or met at a concert in the courtyard. Um, sometimes they've studied in Bates Hall during college or have personal ties. Sometimes their family member had worked at the library. So it really has been touching to read these stories throughout this process, and everyone loves the library. Everyone loves libraries. What tips or considerations would you have for other libraries that might want to turn their beautiful spaces into a wedding venue or maybe more specifically a one-hour wedding venue? Sure. So, you know, libraries, we're always looking for ways to expand our access and our services to the community and the patrons that we help. Um, so we really found that this was an easy way to provide a new service to the community that has real impact and help us, us to be part of the next chapter of people's lives. So I think if you have space, um, you can really make it happen and it doesn't take a lot on your part necessarily. Have you heard? Booklist Reader, Booklist's new book browsing guide offering reading recommendations to patrons of all ages, is now available in print. Go to booklistonline.com to find out how you can order print copies for distribution at your library. Already subscribed? Booklist subscribers can share issues digitally for free. Visit Booklist's website for more details and to see examples of how libraries are already sharing Booklist Reader with their patrons. There's something for everyone in the literary romance world, from vampires and mortals to royalty and paupers, and everything in between. Talking with me about the ins and outs of the genre are two librarian authors, Robin Bradford, author of The Reader's Advisory Guide to Romance, and Jessica Pride, author of Black Love Matters and co-host of podcast One in Romance. They shared how the genre has evolved and how to make romance collections more inclusive for all library patrons. Robin, what long-standing themes have you seen in the romance genre? And in your opinion, are any of these themes considered problematic today? I would say one of the long-standing themes that I've seen has been empowerment. Um, but that doesn't always look the same 
like going from classic to modern titles, some of the things that were thought of as empowering back in the day and kind of the mid-70s, mid-80s, The Flame and the Flower by Kathleen Woodowitz. During that time, the things that were thought of as empowering now look problematic and (laughs) definitely not things that we would see as empowering, but that's really just time, you know, moving on and things change. You have to realize that things that were published back in the 70s and 80s and even the 90s and sometimes even today, they they don't look the same. They don't look the same to everyone and they don't look the same as they did to people who were reading at that time. So even though I think there were some things thought of as empowering, such as, you know, you get kidnapped, but through the love of a good woman, you know, the person who kidnapped you turns into your fairy prince or whatever. That was thought of as empowering for the woman. Like she managed to change this person who was completely terrible and she, through her whatever, <laughs> managed to change him and turn him into a good person. And that was seen as empowering. And today we're like, oh, no, 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 (laughs) no, no, no. And Jessica, did you want to add on to that? To add another layer to the empowerment, especially from the um, what we like to call old school kind of romances from the 70s, 80s and 90s and even the early 2000s and now in that maybe kidnapping situation, there was this element of sexual freedom where um, the person didn't have the rules put upon them by society and they were able to sort of let their freak flag fly, as it were, um, while also changing their kidnapper for the better. And, you know, we're using the kidnapping situation because that is a familiar one to anyone who's read like the flame and the flower and so yes there is a lot of stuff that is absolutely no go now especially to new readers who are trying to explore the classics the theme of empowerment has definitely evolved and let itself sit in some of the prominent stories that we pick up in romance and on top of empowerment, I just wanted to say the the, the more, not prevalent, but the, the thing that is most obvious about what we've seen is sort of this building out of tropes that has evolved from the earlier days of genre romance to now. The thing that we found in our first readings 20 or 30 years ago that we decided we liked is now something that we can pick up and search for thanks to the prevalence of the internet and people doing the work to say these are all fake dating romances these are all marriages of convenience and etc etc there are so many of all of these themes and tropes that we can seek out um, because at some point further down the line 20 or 30 years ago um, writers established those as the best ways to start a romance story or tell a romance story. Um, What was representation of the LGBTQ plus and POC community like in classic romance novels? And what's that representation like now? Are we seeing more or less representation, harmful or more positive? 
it was non-existent. <laughs> I didn't read a lot of those classic romances, but the ones that I read, I don't remember seeing any representation of anybody that was not white and straight. And I could be very wrong about that because people, other people have read much deeper in classic romance than I have, but I could not think of any that had any kind of representation. Yeah, I I learned at the maybe the final Rita Award ceremony or the first Vivian or something that there had been uh, gay romances published in like the 80s, maybe two or three, um, and very much geared towards those groups in a way that things aren't geared towards now. You know, they were sent to gay bookshops. They like in the time when the community was a, a lot more insular than it is now. Um, and the diversity in race was kind of, here are some, here's a handful of Black authors in the 80s. And it wasn't until 10 or 15 years ago that we started seeing more authors who were not Black or white, while we were still only seeing a handful um, of Black authors that we still continue seeing that same handful so yeah it's there are more now than there were in those early days and part of that is because of the prevalence of uh, self and independent publishing and a few publishers who are looking to do the work but not they're still only publishing a handful in comparison to how many white authors they're publishing in the same circle Romance novels, as we all might know, are not immune from being challenged or banned. Why are these titles targeted? Um, how can libraries create a safe space for readers to explore the genre? One of the things is people don't like to see bodies. Like we, we live in a puritanical society and, you know, people don't like to see any bodies sometimes. But if there is an obvious sexual or sensual interaction happening between people that they also don't want to see existing anywhere besides in sort of the stratosphere, then that is something that they will take offense to. So yes, they might say that they don't want to see any manly chests, but they especially don't want to see a black man's chest on the cover of a book that children might see because that's just, that's, that's a thing. Yeah. Back when I was in Indianapolis, I had a couple of books challenged. One was a romance novel that someone's grandchild picked up and the grandkid was um, preteen, so probably, you know, 10, 11, 12, clearly knew that it was not, I think he tried to say it was, he thought it was a, a gaming book mm. and clearly by the cover if there were games it was not <laughs> you should have been looking at um so it made the news and everything it was it was just really really interesting um how it quickly it got turned into for the children um it was an adult book in the adult section and clearly for the children so mm -hmm. yes definitely the puritanical 
society. Um, if adults can't read books meant for adults because somehow a child might happen upon them, that's not that's not the situation that we're looking for. But also, I think right now we're in a time of challenging. We mm-hmm. challenge all the things, and it doesn't matter what the actual content is, even if the suggestion of the content is something we don't want. So we don't want to advertise a quote unquote gay lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So any book that is, it could be completely free of sex. It could be a um, sweet romance. And if there are two men on the cover, then absolutely it's going to end up on someone's list, regardless of what the actual content is. The existence of especially queer characters that are happy A romance novel is the absolute depiction of marginalized people and historically excluded people being able to live, love, and thrive. And there are people who don't want depictions of that. They just want depictions of people suffering because that is what they feel is the truth. Gay existence is sexual content. Doesn't matter Yes. What it is. I'm wondering what are some unexpected trends you've seen emerge in the romance genre, whether it's from the books themselves and what people are writing about or what audiences have been looking for? I would say unexpected for me was the illustrated covers. Um, I, you know, you first you started seeing one or two and then suddenly now that is the norm. Mm-hmm. And I did not expect that. <laughs> I was caught completely off guard at how how much it has taken over the market. I would say the other, maybe not unexpected, and actually it might even be slower moving than I thought, were um, kind of the closed door romances that had nothing to do with religion. Mm-hmm. I expected that to be farther along than it is. Yeah, I I definitely agree with the the surprise that is the absolute taking off of the illustrated covers. I think social media has had a lot to do with that because ooh, isn't this pretty is is a big thing on Instagram, TikTok, um, wherever wherever books are shared. Um, and I feel like it started with uh, Jasmine Guillory's The Wedding Date and has evolved so much from that, that we have all different kinds of illustration. And sort of going off of what Robin was talking about, this sort of broad dichotomy between like super sexy and no sex at all that's happening. More people enter the romance community, pick up romance novels. Um, There are so many people who come in looking for the steamiest book they can find. And there are people who don't want to know that people have private parts at all. And it seems <laughs> like there is there is a huge gap between those groups and publishers and writers are sort of feeding off of that. You can have no sex or you can have an incredibly large amount of sex. Um, the idea of steam itself is one thing that sort of took me by surprise as more people who have 
entered the romance community even just since the pandemic started um, have been talking about it. And what should um, librarians consider when tailoring a romance collection for adults versus teens? I think one thing that um, should stay within people's minds as they're building out, especially an adult collection, is that mass market romances are still viable. Like we talked about the illustrated covers and those are the ones that people are seeing, that people are requesting, um, that people really wanna get their hands on because the covers are so appealing and because going back to that puritanical concept, there aren't human bodies on them. <laughs> um, but some of, some of the best stuff is still happening in books from Avon, books from Entangled, books from Forever that are still in that other format um, that aren't being marketed heavily and they should be considering the things that are coming through that that are much quieter. Um, in terms of the YA versus adult, I would just encourage people to go beyond the regular resources um, for reviews. So mm -hmm. like your Publishers Weekly and Library Journal and all that. Go beyond that. Um, go to Goodreads. Go to, to Amazon. Um, look up reader reviews and pay special attention to um, heat levels and content, mm -hmm. especially for YA, because that is one area where you may find yourself with a book challenge. But also keep in mind that people in general, whether they're readers or watchers or whatnot, like to read up. They're looking for characters that are near their age or just, just beyond their age, though. So a 15, 16, 17-year-old reader doesn't necessarily care about the character that's 35 or 40. So mm -hmm. keep it relevant but they absolutely care about the 21 year and what it might be like being post high school on your own, not necessarily college, but maybe college, um, but just out there living life unrestricted to rules, which is what every teenager thinks. So I would make sure that it's tailored really specifically um, in terms of age group so that it's relevant to the YA reader, but also tailor it um, in terms of content so that you're not constantly fighting parents or admin <laughs> at your library who are going to be running a little bit scared right now. Absolutely. And there are like that, that college age uh, group, th there used to be this thing called new adult and it doesn't really exist anymore, but now it lives in both places. Yes. So there are YA novels about people who are college-aged, and there are adult romance novels about people who are college-aged. And sometimes the only way to know the difference is to know who's publishing them and to know who's writing them. So sort of being aware of that because you might encounter something that has a 19 or 20 year old main character, but has an extensively high steam level compared to something that's published by a YA publisher with the same age character. So if you are concerned about 
those challenges from the public or from other staff members, just sort of know that they exist in the same space, but are completely different as far as their audience and the goals of the author. Who are some of your favorite literary couples and why? Some of my most most recent favorites are um, the couple Preston and Angie from A Thin Line by D.L. White, which mm. she tags as lovers to enemies to lovers, which is <laughs> so accurate. And another favorite couple, I've really gotten into hockey romances over the last year or so. And so Ilya and Shane, Yes. Um, um, <laughs> he did rivalry and the long game. I absolutely love them. Yeah, I I support that. They're they're great. In historical romances, I really like wife dukes. You know, like have you have you heard about my wife? How amazing she is. That that kind of guy. Um and then I couldn't think of any. Um but in some <laughs> contemporary Folks that I've I've really liked over the past few years are um, Alex and Lauren from All the Fields. I just love their dynamic. They're, Alex is like a golden retriever uh, main character and Lauren is very much not. And the way that they come together is just ideal. Um, Zenny and Mason from Zenny, A Marriage of Inconvenience by um, Rebecca Weatherspoon. I just love how enthusiastic they are about each other and about life and uh Danny and Raph from Take a Hint Danny Brown by Talia Hibbert the same thing it's kind of just one of those like I love how much they hype each other up and want each other to succeed um and do what they can to help that have you heard Booklist Reader, Booklist's new book browsing guide offering reading recommendations to patrons of all ages, is now available in print. Go to booklistonline.com to find out how you can order print copies for distribution at your library. Already subscribed? Booklist subscribers can share issues digitally for free. Visit Booklist's website for more details and to see examples of how libraries are already sharing Booklist Reader with their patrons. ALA Editions senior editor Jamie Santoro and I trekked through the halls of ALA's recent LibLearnX conference to ask attendees about their favorite literary couples. Here's what they said. My name is Kathleen Breitenbach, and I'm the teen librarian at the Hamilton Township Free Public Library in New Jersey. Uh, I think my favorite literary couple would have to be Nova and Tam from Mooncakes. Uh, my name is Jennifer Franz. I am an adult services librarian at the Cosby Library and Community Commons in Capel, Texas. You know, the one that comes to mind, I really love Emily Henry. She was a new author to me, and the first one I read was The Book Lovers. And so that couple whose names, of course, escaped me. My name is Marion Kearns. I am the Library Collections Manager for Frederick County Public Libraries in Frederick, Maryland. Um, I would say that my favorite literary couple is probably uh, Elizabeth and Darcy because it follows my, one of my favorite tropes, which is um, enemies to lovers. I'm Erica Long, and I am a library consultant, um, certified school librarian with a background in secondary libraries or secondary school libraries. And I'm from Tennessee. My favorite literary couple is probably SJ and Justice. 
And what book is that from? Dear Martin. Dear Martin. <laughs> awesome. As always, we're mad about you. Let us know if the feeling is mutual. We welcome feedback and hope to hear from you soon. Next episode, we're talking about COVID-19, three years since the onset of the pandemic. Is there a story or topic you'd like us to cover? Let us know. Thanks for listening.